If you brought your Bibles tonight, please open with me to the book of Leviticus, of all places. We're going to be reading selections tonight from chapter 4, 5, and 6. I recognize that in many ways this is one of the more challenging parts of the evening is just listening to the readings. But bear with me and give your attention to the reading of God's word. Leviticus chapter 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done or does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of the fat of the bull, of the sin offering, he shall remove from it. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. And the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins. And the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burning. But the skin of the bull and its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails and its dung... All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a wood of fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Chapter 5. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of an unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering." And the priest shall make atonement for him and for his sin. Chapter 6. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, In any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression 
or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is God's word. It was the summer of 1992 that I found myself in New York City, in a place of New York that I actually never expected to be at. Uh, And it's still actually there. At the intersection of 79th Street and Hudson Parkway, there's a very interesting uh, roundabout ramp that creates underneath it uh, um, something like a little domed inside area. And in the late 80s, it had become something of a haven for homeless people. Uh, As a matter of fact, MTV ended up doing a big spread that year on the homeless community that was living under this large uh, rotunda. But I got to visit this place in the summer of 92 while visiting a, uh, an inner city mission there in New York City. And while I was there, I had a conversation with someone that I thought to be an elderly woman uh, who was among that homeless community. Uh, it turns out she was in her mid to late uh, 30s. Uh, she just had aged so poorly. But mostly I asked her about her life and about whether or not there was any assistance coming to her from the local government. And she explained to me, she said, well, you know, sometimes they give us food. We can usually get uh, that kind of help. And, you know, if you actually have kids, you may even get a place to stay. And then she went on to say, but you know what we've all found out, at least what a lot of my friends have found out, is that if you actually have AIDS, you're sure to get a place if you find out that you have AIDS. She said, I know a lot of my friends who are trying to get AIDS, So they can be assured of a place for them and for their children to stay. You know, there's a moment in your life where you're having a conversation with a dysfunctional person that you honestly can't realize until you've been in the midst of it, where you suddenly think to yourself, hmm, (laughs) okay, this person does not do reality the way that I do. Um, I remember a friend of mine saying that the minute that you begin to get involved in the life of a dysfunctional person, especially someone who has been battered and racked for years through homelessness and poverty, you begin to realize that two plus two doesn't always equal four. And you realize that there is in common, uh, in, in embedded in these people's hearts, a confusion about life, a dysfunction about life where the phrase common sense ceases to mean anything. And you honestly can't know it until you've been around for it. I'll be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why I have very little patience with people who offer what I would consider to be very superficial answers to the problem of poverty. Um, You know, get a job is not a solution to dealing with poverty because the poverty gets inside you. It becomes part of what you, how you look at the world. It gets deeply embedded in your souls. I remember that illustration because I'm constantly trying to remind you that the book of Leviticus was written to a people group who had spent 400 plus years as a people in captivity and only recently released. 
And what that means is, is you have a people that as a community are experiencing deep gashes psychologically, emotionally, uh, morally, and socially. On the entire human range of experience, this people is going through that. So here's the question that I have for you tonight. How do you have a relationship with someone who is in possession of that kind of dysfunctional thinking? Dysfunctional thinking that's so bad that they've actually become repellent to you. You know what I mean by that? They push you away. I had a friend of mine put it this way one time. He said, you begin to ask yourself a question, how do you have a relationship with a porcupine? Every time I get close, I get hurt with a person like that. That's what it's like to enter into the life of a person who's gone through that. Um, So here's the thing, though. The sin offering, as we just stumble across here tonight in chapter 4, 5, and 6, is God's answer to that question. But it's primarily because it's his problem. I think it's important for us to be involved in the lives of very dysfunctional people because it really helps us to get a picture of what it's like for God to relate to us. You see, in God's understanding with these ancient people, he's saying, look, you are the porcupine. (laughs) And be honest with you, the way in which you deal with the world, dysfunctionally, psychologically, sinfully, is repellent. And if you and I are going to have a real relationship, like we talked about last week, we've got to deal with your continued failures. I got to be honest with you, of all the conversations that I have most regularly with religious type people on this campus, this is right up there. If I'm going to call myself a Christian and attempt to sort of lead a Christian life, what do I do with the fact that I'm constantly failing? That I'm never really fully measuring up to what I know God wants me to do. Well, all I want to simply pitch to you tonight is that I believe one of the major reasons for this uh, misunderstanding and for the reason why people end up giving up on Christianity when they come to college is because they don't know how to answer that question. Look, the good news of the book of Leviticus, the gospel that is there in shadows for us, is that guess what? Uh, there's a way for redeemed people who still sin to still have a relationship with God. Tonight we're going to look at what the old ancient Puritans used to call remaining sin under three headings. You got them right there on your sheet tonight. The first thing I want you to understand from this passage is that sin is objective failure. Sin is objective failure. When the Bible talks about the topic of sin... It doesn't talk about it in the way in which we modern people often talk about it. Uh, For us, you know, sin tends to be cast, if it's talked about at all, as um, like misfortune. Uh, Perhaps it's thought of as getting out of alignment with your own deeply held personal values. But that's the reason why I wanted to read chapter 4, verse 1. Because you see how it opened up. It says, if anyone sins unintentionally. That's a weird way to talk because what God is saying is, is that we can sin even when we don't know that we have. And what I think that means, first of all, to modern people is that in God's agenda, sin is not getting out of alignment with your own values. As a matter of fact, sin and truth and reality 
can very easily be something that's larger than your own perception of it. Did you catch that? That sin comes to us as a real standard. A real standard which God suggests we break all the time. Even in our nature, we break all the time. Look, for most people, morality is a moving target. (laughs) Um, No one, we think to ourselves, has the right to say what's right and wrong for me. Nobody can sort of choke their values down my throat. But the funny thing with the people who end up insisting on that so much is the second that you remove the interview pad from them and just watch them uh, for a little while, especially when they end up being offended by something, the story dramatically changes, does it not? Because for some of those same people, they insist on a standard that they never live by. In other words, they look at you and say that we honestly can't impose our values on one another. But then they turn right around and scream that it's not fair for such and such a group to have their opinion that they have. Well, well, forgive me, but uh, how is that not a value that you're just expressing? In other words, the issue of whether or not people acknowledge that there's value is inevitable in our culture, and yet we constantly are insisting that we don't have one. And the question can be turned right back around on them. You don't like the fact that Christianity makes claims about your nature, that you are a sinful person at your core. But don't you have the same values when you look and insist upon the internal and absolute goodness of the human soul? In other words, why do you think that your values can be, oppressed, can be pressed upon me? In other words, what the Bible is simply saying is that whenever you encounter God's law, God's law, the Bible says, is an expression of God's character. And because it's such, it's always a personal offense to him because it's a standard outside of our own imagination. You know, the phrase unintentional sin can often be, as often translated, going astray in sin. In other words, it's not necessarily uh, focused towards the act, but it's focused on an act that's done without any reference to God. And God says, we can't have a relationship if you're going to keep doing that. Look, gentlemen, imagine this circumstance for you. We'll get a little free marriage advice here in for you in the midst of this illustration. Let's say that you're at work and you know it's Friday afternoon, you've had a really long week, and you kind of just want to go home and relax. So you invite a couple of guys from the office, and you look at them and say, fellas, why don't you come with me? We're all going to go home, uh, get some food, and watch the big game. So you walk in the door, 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, and you find there on the couch your wife. And she is just as exhausted as you are stretched out on the couch looking forward to an evening. And you look over the couch at her and you say, guess what, honey? We got uh, some folks coming over, you know, to to hang out for a little while. Some of my buddies are coming over tonight. Now, let me give you (laughs) what the response is going to be to that statement. It'll go something along the lines of this. Hmm. Um, it appears that you've made a decision uh, without reference to my interests, haven't you, my darling? (laughs) In other words, part of the great challenge of marriage is learning to live in reference to another person. We're not allowed to make decisions that aren't made in reference to the other person's existence. Because if you do that, you don't have a real relationship. That's what God is saying. That when there's a breach, it must be accounted for if you're going to have a real relationship. By the way, before we move on to the next point, I think this answers an age-old question that Christians constantly ask me. They're like, well, having been forgiven by God, what does God think about it when I still sin? 
You ever thought about this? I mean, what, what goes on between he and I if I still struggle? And the answer is, is that sin continues to be offensive to him. If Leviticus says anything, it means that your continued breaches, even after you've entered through the burnt offering, continue to be something that's offensive to me. And that offense has got to be acknowledged and accounted for and dealt with. Why? Because this is a real relationship we're having. There's an elephant in the middle of the room and somebody's got to deal with it. So first of all, sin is objective failure. But secondly, you need to realize that the sin that we struggle with is always going to be distinguished by the way in which we deal with it, or at least how we respond to it. You know, you may have heard people look and say things like this. Well, you know, uh, God thinks that all sin is the same. But you know, that's actually not entirely true. I mean, I'll grant the fact that all sin makes us equally uh, responsible before God, equally culpable before God. But it doesn't mean that God sees all sins in the same way. And Leviticus teaches us all kinds of things on this matter. And in Leviticus, we get two main types of sins. You have unintentional sins, and then you have intentional sins. And what chapter 5 does for us, if you flip over there, is outline for us various examples for what it calls inadvertent sins. In other words, they're sins that lack uh, what we might call premeditation. They're what we might call a lapse. Something that was off the track of what my true character is really about. I don't know how many of you have ever read Romans chapter 7, where we get a rather vulnerable moment from the Apostle Paul, where he's talking about the good that he's trying to do, he keeps not doing. (laughs) And the bad things that he's trying not to do, he keeps on doing. And all of a sudden, he looks in the middle of it and says, but if I do the things that I don't want to do, guess what? It's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. Now, the first time you read that, you're kind of like, uh, that's a cop out. Oh, it wasn't me that did that. <laughs> I'm not the one who, you know, got wasted the other night and made a fool of myself at the party. That wasn't me. That was sin that did it. I'm like what? Look, what Paul is saying is, is the deepest sense of what I call me, the most fundamental expression of my character is not going to be defined by that action. In other words, Paul is doing work with his identity. He's struggling with his identity and says, when I consider myself at the deepest level of my being, that sin is not going to dictate who I am. But here's what I want you to notice. And I found this incredibly encouraging because the intentional sins can be treated as unintentional sins if you repent. And to be honest with you, this is one of the beautiful messages of the book of Leviticus. One commentator said that repentance turns any sin unintentional. And you've got to remember this because once you confess, once we own up to it, once we acknowledge that what I've been involved in or whatever I know is offensive to God is wrong, you open up the possibility for change. Some of you know this only to a degree, but I want you to plant this somewhere because it's going to come evident to you over the year, years in college. For the people that bow up to you, they're the most difficult to see change really happen. You know what I'm talking about? If you go to somebody and all you get is attitude or worse, all you get is defensiveness. Who are you to be talking to me? Oh, I'm sorry. You're going to confront me on this. What about your thing, right? 
Whenever people have that attitude towards their offenses, you got nowhere to go. There's no possibility for change. And that's the reason why in Leviticus, God is establishing this very sophisticated, unbelievably detailed system to say, look, you've got to have humility. You've got to come to the table with a sense of change being possible. Look, as long as you persist in denial, or if you continue to make excuses about your life, there's nowhere to go. And there's no possibility for change. And God says, I want to open up the possibility of change. Look, later on in the book of Numbers, which, (laughs) don't worry, we're not going to do Numbers next semester. Um, We find out in the book of Numbers about sinning with a high hand. Have you ever read this? Sinning with a high hand. This is what we would refer to as willfully disobeying God. It's sort of giving the middle finger, as it were, to God and saying, I I know God doesn't like this. And to be honest with you, I just don't care. But I'm going to march into it right away, no matter what. God actually treats this sin much more seriously. There is a, a, a certain application of those kinds of sins where people are actually removed from the camp. In some circumstances, they're actually given a death sentence in the Old Testament code, because God is looking and saying that those sins that are done with a high hand, the willful, continual kinds of things, I take very seriously. Jesus picks up on this theme in Matthew chapter 18, where he instructs his people who are doing what they call church discipline. For the people who sin with a high hand, he says they are to be removed from the camp. And being on the outside of the people in the fellowship of God is supposed to make them want to be back. And to repent and open up to the possibility of change. I mention this because there are other passages in the New Testament which it's only fair to give you awareness of. For instance, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 where they talk about people who go on sinning deliberately. And for those people there, and this is the phrase, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But listen, what God is saying in Leviticus is you can still turn from that path. There is a point at which, and Jesus talks about this in John chapter 12, where our heart can be blinded, where we commit what Jesus refers to as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a sin, by Jesus' own words, cannot be forgiven. The reason that you cannot be forgiven is because in that circumstance, you never want to be forgiven. What's happened is, is you've become hardened. And this is an absolutely vital element that I would, be, I, would, I would be not helpful to you if I didn't tell you what the Bible teaches about this. The Bible teaches that your heart is of a nature, that it gets into grooves. And I use the word grooves because there's a great old illustration about, uh, you know, um, the old, um, uh, old western wagon wheels. You know, if you think about it, back in the old west, they had dirt roads that the more that you drove over those dirt roads in the same place, as the, as the streets would, as the roads would harden and, and soften with rain and with weather, eventually they would dig these grooves that once the wagon had gotten in the middle of those things, the longer that it persisted on that path, the harder it was to turn. Look, y'all, your heart is of a similar nature. And God is looking and saying, you are digging grooves in your life. So much so that every single sin that we end up dabbling with, 
ends up making tomorrow's repentance less likely. I, I, I need you to hear this because I think it's an important thing for people in, at Ole Miss who say this kinds of thing to themselves all the time. We look and we come to this place and we say, it's just college. Come on, Les. I'm only here for four years. Give me a break. My parents have encouraged me to come down here and enjoy it. My friends, you're digging grooves. A number of years ago, I was in the grove and standing sort of in a group of people. And I overheard a conversation that took place sort of two collections of people ago from an older man, somewhere in his 50s. And walking past him was a young lady, uh, not part of his conversation, but she was dressed, I guess I can say inappropriately, some extraordinarily diving neckline that ended somewhere where it should have, you know, ended long before. And this older guy looked over at this girl, and you know what, you know what he said, ladies? He looked over at his buddy and kind of nudged him, and he couldn't tell that I could hear him, but he looks and goes, boy, remember the old days when we could get that? And I know for all of you, you're looking and kind of going, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Drunk, creepy, old men in the grove. Gee, where, where do those people come from? <laughs> you want to know where they come from? They come from here. At old Miss from people who looked and said, it's just four years. Let me tell you, extend that behavior out over the next 30 years and you suddenly become that guy. You want to know why? Because your heart is of a nature that makes grooves. And that's why Jesus is constantly saying, and that's why the book of Leviticus is constantly saying, to repent makes an intentional sin unintentional. And there's an offering for that, and change is possible. You are not guaranteed tomorrow's repentance, my friends. The thought that one day when I graduate and I get married to a nice guy or to a nice girl, that I'll change it all and I'll get back to church and I'll read my Bible and we'll raise kids the way they're supposed to be is a lie. We're digging grooves and the Bible looks and says, don't. Today is the day. <laughs> Now's the day. Get humble about it. Look, y'all, I find it interesting that in the book of Leviticus, it looks and says, on the one hand, some of you need to openly confess these things. Think about what they had to do. They had to go to the front of the camp and offer their offering to say, I did this. For some of you, you need to go public with what's going on with you. And by public, I don't mean like everybody in the room. But you may need to find somebody that gets that sin out to where somebody can hold you accountable, where you can sort of get that thing from simply being an internal struggle. The second thing that interests me, though, is for these things, you get a wonderful, interesting principle of restitution. These people, when they were caught, when their sin ended up cost, when they end up committing sin, it cost them something. It cost them 20%, you know, one-fifth of what it was that ever they extorted or stole or kept back as far as greed was concerned. I've been thinking about this all summer, and I really don't even know where to go with this, but I find that interesting that there was a day when sin cost us something. And don't you see how much psychological health that probably gave them? Fascinated by that thought. Ah, we're running out of time. Let me finish with this. The final thought, though, is that sin is forgiven with the same objectivity. 
Um, sin is forgiven. In other words, if sin is objective failure, when God comes and lays down the pattern of forgiveness, it's got the same strength to it. Did you notice how many times the phrase said in these verses, and he shall be forgiven? Well, I counted five times. In chapter 4, verse 12, we outline this fact that whenever you have this sacrifice, it's taken outside the camp and completely consumed. In other words, the image is trying to tell us that when God comes and deals with you on the basis of the sacrifice that comes, it's absolute forgiveness. It's objective forgiveness. It's unmess-upable forgiveness, (laughs) to butcher the lingo. Look, y'all, it has to be final. There has to be a certainty to that sacrifice. But this is what was wrong with the book of Leviticus. There is a huge gaping inadequacy in this system that that, that God established. You want to know why? Because whenever you went and offered the sacrifice, you know what problem you still had? What if you do it again? i got to be honest with you. The most time when I talk to people and they have something that their conscience is really bothering them about... They believe that God can forgive them for that one. But that's not the problem. The problem is when I did it again and again. And we're getting up into the you know, triple digits on the times in which I've had to come up to God with this. What do I do about that? Look, y'all, this is why the New Testament pitches itself oftentimes as the good news So that in Hebrews chapter 10, you have the writer going to great lengths saying that when Jesus comes and offers his sacrifice, he does so permanently. Listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. You know what he says? Which can never take away sins. But, good news, (laughs) listen. When Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is more in that than I have time to go through. He did for one time those who are being sanctified. In other words, he did something certainly that gives you strength during the process. Yes, there's a struggle. Yes, there's a process that we're going through. But what this means is for every repentant sinner, you are are absolutely accepted back. Objectively accepted back. In other words, just as objective was the failure is the forgiveness for repentance. Look, I have a suspicion that I've wondered over the years. Is it possible that one of the reasons why repentance remains outside of your grasp is because because you've doubted that fact? i got to be honest with you. I became convinced years ago that it's much harder to repent when your image of God is one of a very frustrated kind of sovereign who when he accepts you back is just kind of tolerating you. You know what I mean by that? Oh, he's welcomed me back. But the truth is, it's just him kind of being like, okay, well, I guess we'll do it this time. That's not good news. And people don't like to repent in the midst of that. When I was doing my study for this this summer, I listened to a preacher preaching through this passage who gave 
what I thought was an amazing illustration because it was kind of close to home. As a pastor, you know, he had struggled financially with his money. And one of the aspects of that was that his car, his little minivan, had broken down. And the pastor was talking about this to his father. And his father, who was doing fairly well financially speaking, uh, looked at him and said, um, let us get a, a, a new minivan for you. And with an unbelievable amount of grace, bought his own son a brand new car that they could get around in. Um, well, they were extraordinarily grateful. But later on, a couple of months later, uh, they decided to get their car checked out before they took a summer trip uh, to go on vacation. And they took it to the service station to get it sort of looked over. And it turns out that there was something wrong with the car that was in the manufacturer. And it was actually some fairly expensive problems with the car. And the guy said, all of a sudden I froze because he thought to himself, I mean, my father has already gone to all this expense to get me this car. I mean, I can't go back to him and ask him now to fix it. And he said, all of a sudden he had a huge earth shattering thought because he said, what if God is not like what I'm afraid my father will be like? In other words, what if we're looking and constantly saying to ourselves, you know what? He already took me back after all those other times. I can't ask him again. You know what I think you'd think? I think you would think that was good news. The guy actually ended up telling his father and his father looked and said, it's my pleasure to do this for you and to deal with this. And he said, you know what? Don't ever hesitate to come to me for help. I love you. You're my son. I wonder how different it would be for us to look at our own repentance as if if it was a celebration of coming home. And what if this bizarre ancient book was nothing more than that, that was going to a God who is not waiting for us with a disappointed frown, but is looking for us with an expectant embrace. Because that's the good news of Leviticus. It's the gospel in these shadows. Look, y'all, consider that an invitation that today is the day of repentance. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you open up for us and to us that very door? Because for a lot of us, the grooves have gotten deep. And we struggle with whether or not we really are able to be forgiven. We look and feel like we've been back too many times. We wonder if we have out-sinned your grace. And we have committed sins that we, if by anyone's estimation, were with an extremely high hand. Lord Jesus, maybe tonight is the first night in which we've realized that. Would you grant to us, though, the grace of the potential for change by stopping our denial and to quit blaming other people and to realize that we look in your face? Lord Jesus, if you would do that, our time of having come here tonight would be worthwhile because we would leave this place with a new beginning, with you not frowning as we often think that you are but with longing to bring even your children who have been back again and again and again back into your fellowship.
What a glorious night it would be if you would do that in this place tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.